Welcome to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast presented by Political Flavors. You can find us at feministcoffeehour.com, Feminist Coffee Hour on iTunes Store, at femcoffeepod on Twitter, and askfm slash feministcoffeehour. You can email us at feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Karen. And I'm Elizabeth. So, Elizabeth, what's on your mind today? So I want to talk about a story that I heard about in Germany. The mayor Mm -hmm. of Cologne, Germany, is a very interesting woman. Um, They just had their election. And before the election, uh, her name is Henriette Raker. And she is in favor of giving asylum to Syrian refugees in Germany. And she was attacked by a uh, racist person who stabbed her in the neck and she survived and she went on to win the election and she's the first woman mayor of cologne germany so i thought that that was an amazing story and good job uh henriette raker yeah wow i mean um sounds like some domestic terrorism having politicians i know maybe they wouldn't use that term well you know yeah domestic in germany you know the police did call it oh yeah that's what i meant a racist attack and a xenophobic attack so that's what's going on in germany and i just thought the story was amazing so i wanted to share it because it didn't get that much press in the u.s hey everyone it's elizabeth since this episode was recorded there were shocking reports of robbery and sexual assault on new year's eve in cologne germany as reported by the bbc cologne mayor henriette Riker said that the attacks were monstrous she continued we cannot allow this to become a lawless area Later, it was reported on DW.com that Riker proposed a code of conduct urging women to travel in groups for safety and to stay at least an arm's length away from strangers. Neither Karen nor I is fluent in German, so it's hard to understand if there's any cultural context we are missing. But it's difficult to see how these suggestions could stop premeditated sexual assault by flash mobs. Our thoughts are with the victims, and we hope that Mayor Riker will stop advising women on what to do and focus on bringing justice to those responsible. So what have you been thinking about lately, Karen? So last month was Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and uh, I noticed that there was one uh, particular day where a few people I saw on Facebook were uh, not wearing a bra all day for breast cancer awareness. Hmm. Uh, And it's not like... They weren't wearing a bra under uh, a breast cancer t-shirt or that they were donating money like for every minute that somebody stared at their chest like they donated $10 or something. Um, people who presumably have breasts because they haven't had mastectomies mm-hmm. didn't wear a bra for breast cancer awareness because no one's aware of breast cancer and they had to be made aware by staring at their boobs. Not that I believe not wearing a bra is an invitation to having your boobs stared at. But anyway, you know, it reminded me of uh, a concept called pink washing, mm-hmm. which is instead of providing useful health care to women or instead of supporting treatment research and innovative research on cancer treatments, breast cancer awareness becomes the focus of our public discourse around breast cancer. And so... A big part of that is selling things with pink ribbons on them mm-hmm. or products that have been dyed pink or painted pink or turned pink right? Uh, in the name of breast cancer awareness. 
And one of the things that's really irritating about that is I'm pretty sure we're all aware of breast cancer in the U.S. at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, If at this point you are not aware of breast cancer, I would recommend you Google breast cancer. Yeah. Because I really think it's on you at this point. (laughs) No, it was all over social media. And um, I I think that your comment about, you know, people staring at your boobs isn't going to do anything for breast cancer. I mean, Mm -hmm. a lot of people were posting provocative and sexy pictures on social media. And, you know, it was definitely, you know, they they wanted people to look at these pictures. And I don't know what that had Mm -hmm. to do with curing breast cancer. It was kind of strange. I don't know what one thing had to do with another. I mean, you can post sexy pictures whenever you want. Well, there it is. You can't you can post sexy pictures whenever you want. But you can be called self-centered, looking for attention, various uh attention slurs uh for posting these pictures and for women to kind of be owning their sexuality or owning, you know, their representation of their sexuality. It's something that we really frown upon as a society, and there's a lot of backlash for women who choose to do it in public. Because there's there's plenty parts of it that aren't tinged with this sexuality component, but I think the parts that are, are just a socially acceptable way for women to express their sexuality without opening themselves up to this harsh backlash or having a very easy retort to the harsh backlash, which is, no, I'm doing this for a good cause. I'm being sexually provocative, not because I want to be, but because I want to help other women, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And I think that those are our two really awesome goals. Feeling sexy, controlling your image is like one really, like, really awesome goal. And supporting other women's health is another great goal. And so I think expressing them together explicitly would be really lovely, but I think it's kind of couched in this weird way that women can't approach their sexuality directly. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes like, no, I'm not even trying to be sexy. Yeah, I don't even know if I would call that a contradiction or a paradox or a... It's it's a very odd It's kind of just like a skewing of something Mm -hmm. you know it's just like no this is not what i'm doing i'm doing this other thing but it's not like a charity strip show right where the profits go to breast cancer research and so the more things about pinkwashing that's really interesting is that the breast cancer awareness month Mm -hmm. like national breast cancer awareness month was established by the American Cancer Society, but the the funding for it came from Zeneca, the pharmaceutical company, who is still the largest funder, especially at Komen, I think, uh, the mo- their most recent fundraisers uh, in the top five is AstraZeneca. That's really strange. Well, it's not that strange, <laughs> but it's really upsetting. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I've written a little bit about pinkwashing in that... Um, there are some cosmetics companies that use carcinogens in their makeup, mm-hmm. but then, you know, go pink for Breast Cancer Awareness Month when they're creating products that are causing cancer. Or I think the most right. egregious was, it was either last year or the year before, when um, a company had a pink drill bit for, like, fracking or something mm. for Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and it just, it's, it's gotten a little bit out of control. Yeah, so one of the weirdest ones that I've heard about this year, I think, um, was Massachusetts police 
using pink handcuffs oh my God. for breast cancer awareness. <laughs> yes, I remember that. With And also wearing pins that, that say arrest breast cancer because breast cancer is a criminal. I don't get it. So, I mean, I get it, like the double meaning of arrest, like to stop and to put in jail. But, um, yeah, it seems like... I don't know. I can't imagine people in a squad car are just like, oh, yeah, thanks. Let me check my tits in the <laughs> holding cell for any lumps. <laughs> you know? Uh, and I, I know kind of walking around New York City, I've seen police cars painted pink with breast cancer awareness things all over them. And so it's kind of interesting how that ends up working out, um, that things are, are very pink, but... Actually, you know, most of the people who have breast cancer are probably not helped by everything being pink. And especially with organizations like Susan G. Komen, a lot of the money that goes to them is spent on overhead and things that are not directly related to breast cancer research. And uh, breast cancer treatment has gotten actually less effective over time. So something's not going right. You see pink everywhere more and more each year. Save the tatas. You know, everyone's about saving the titties, not the women that have the titties, but the titties. And, you know, if the titties aren't saved in the cancer, but the woman is saved, was it successful for these people? I mean, it creates these kind of, like, interesting values. Uh, in what we're doing this cancer for. And I understand you want to make your fundraising fun and sexy. You don't want it to be doom and gloom all the time. But I think that there is an impact to where your focus is. I agree. And I think there have been lots of writing by breast cancer survivors that, that back you up. Mm-hmm. Barbara Ehrenreich being one of them. Yes, and I think exactly. there's a few others. Zenny Jarden as well. And so I think for our, our main topic today... We're going to have our very special first guest star. Yes, our first interview. Yeah, very exciting. So, um, we have a new Speaker of the House in the United States, uh, Paul Ryan. And um, it might be good for the country that we're going to continue to get stuff done, but I don't know if that's so good for women. Um, From the Planned Parenthood Action Fund Twitter account, Speaker Ryan is one of the leading voices calling to dismantle Medicaid, which would cut health care to millions. Paul Ryan co-sponsored personhood legislation that could ban forms of birth control and outlaw abortion. Paul Ryan co-sponsored a bill that allows hospitals to deny abortions to women, even if it would save her life. And Paul Ryan has said, I'm as pro-life as a person gets, and he opposes abortion without any exceptions. So something that's been widely reported in the press is that Paul Ryan is a big fan of Ayn Rand and her philosophy of objectivism. He's distanced himself from her ideas in recent years, but he did say that her books were very influential on him, his views on economics, and the reason he entered politics. Clearly, Ryan is also influenced by the Catholic Church and the mainstream Republican Party. But there's lots of places to learn about Catholic and Republican views on women, sex, and gender. So let's talk about objectivism and gender instead. Here with us is author, speaker, and personal disclosure, my husband, Adam Lay. He's written the book Daylight Atheism, and he blogs on Pathos with a blog of that same name. 
He wrote a series of fantasy novels, The Kaliel Cycle, which are available in multiple formats, and he's published articles in The Guardian and Salon. But what we want to talk about is that in 2013, he started a series blogging Ayn Rand's novel Atlas Shrugged, and it's gone into the intricacies and inconsistencies of her writings and philosophy. So who better to talk about objectivism? Welcome to the show, Adam. Hi, Welcome, good Adam. to be here. Thanks for having me on. So what is objectivism? For people who don't know. Yes. So objectivism was the political and moral philosophy of this writer named Ayn Rand, who, uh, as you mentioned, um, she was born in Russia in the early 20th century to a fairly wealthy family that fled the country after the communist takeover and came to America where she became a screenwriter and a novelist. And the book she wrote throughout her life espoused this philosophy she invented called objectivism, which was basically the exact opposite of communism, which she, she hated and was very embittered towards. Objectivism, she claimed, was a philosophy based solely on reason and happiness. Um, but what it comes down to in practice is that completely free market capitalism with no laws and no government regulation is not just the best but the only way to organize society. And anyone who says differently is not just um, wrong but, but an enemy of freedom and life itself. Uh, these And these uh, viewpoints were exposed, including her most famous book, Atlas Shrugged, which is set in an alternate history United States, um, a world apparently where World War II never happened, but instead the communists have taken over the entire world, including the United States of America by degrees. And the few remaining capitalist titans of the United States, to prove how indispensable they are, say they, are, they go on strike, they withdraw from society, they refuse to use their, their brilliance and their productive talent – and without them, society slowly collapses into anarchy and millions of people starve to death. And that was the kind of thing that Ayn Rand considered a happy ending. So that gives you a pretty good idea of what her philosophy was in practice. Yeah, that's some happy ending. So hmm. um, so uh, did objectivism or Ayn Rand have anything to say about gender roles and the, the roles of men and women in society? Yes, she did. And I think her views on gender are kind of the most interesting part of her philosophy. Her, her views on capitalism, like I said, were fairly straightforward. Her views on gender were kind of a strange blend of the progressive and the misanthropic. Um, the heroine of Atlas Shrugged is a woman, Dagny Taggart, who's the head of a transcontinental – not the head, but the, the power behind the throne of a transcontinental railroad firm owned by her brother. And Ayn Rand's uh, viewpoint consistently stated is that women are – just as talented, just as intelligent, just as hardworking as men when they want to be. But the kind of strange um, addendum to this was that she also believed that in spite of being just as talented and just as good as men at most things, um, women were psychologically designed to have a need to look up to men. And that um, a woman who was in charge of something, Rand said that the psychological pressure of being president, for example, would destroy her mind, and that just by nature, a woman needs to admire and worship a man even if she's just as good as, as, uh, as she is. And this kind of expresses itself in some very uh, disturbing ways in Atlas Shrugged. Uh, Dagny Taggart, her heroine, has relationships with three different men over the course of the novel, uh, one of whom is married, and all of them uh, mistreat and abuse her. They, you know, kind of grab her and drag her around when they want her to go places. They, they speak to her in very degrading and sexist terms. 
you know, they call her a whore and such things. Um, on more than one occasion, they even beat her or threaten to beat her when she doesn't act the way they want. But um, in Rand's eyes, that was not just fine. That was appropriate. That was the way that men and women were supposed to were supposed to interact and were supposed to treat each other. And that um, in, in her view, women were uh, in favor of that kind of degrading treatment. Is there anything in her writing that says that this wasn't just kind of like a fictional plot point? About the character, uh, maybe I'm, I I don't come from a background of having read Ayn Rand, so I'm kind of going to be the ignorant member of our audience for the purpose of this interview. I, I, I didn't read it either. I just read Adam's recaps, so he, he saved oh. me from it. <laughs> I'm sorry, Adam. I haven't even read those. Uh, I think I read one. That's so in, in any other book, you know, like stereotypical mm-hmm. supermarket bodice ripper romance, you might reasonably mm-hmm. wonder whether this was just intended to be some pure fantasy that didn't convey a larger message. But the thing about Ayn Rand is that she always insisted that her fiction was just sort of a sugar coating for her actual philosophy, that she really did believe that men and women should act and treat each other the way they're depicted in her books. Um, she considered all her characters to be idealized versions of like the ideal man man or woman there's there's a postscript to atlas shrugged where she says basically this you know and i mean it that's what she says in the postscript that this is really this is really how i think people are meant to live and how i think people are meant to treat each other um she always insisted that her fiction was just a vehicle for her philosophy well it's a very dismal view of human relationships uh which is my impression of objectivism in general, is that the the focus is on this concept that an individual human can have pure reason, and that this pure reason is the only thing to base your relationships on. Do you think that would be kind of an accurate impression? Yeah, it was very much not just in her fiction, but also... A, it worked its way into her, a personal view of her life. You know, um, Rand believed, among other things, that your emotions were subject to full conscious control if you were a properly rational person. So the person you fall in love with um, shows everyone what your deepest values are and what you desire. And there's this famous story about her life that she she ended up, after the publication of Atlas Shrugged, when she became quite famous, sort of the head of her own uh, cult is basically the only way to describe it, just a circle of people who worshipped her and admired her and tried to put her philosophy into practice. Um, and one of them, her her number two person, was a psychologist named Nathaniel Brandon. And he was you know, her chief disciple. He, she considered him to be the foremost expounder of her views. And uh, several years into their collaboration, Ayn Rand and Nathaniel Brandon started sleeping together in spite of the fact that each of them were married – both of them were married to other people at the time. And in their eyes, this was not um, – this was not coincidental, I suppose, because their their belief was that as the two most intelligent and rational people in the world, they were phil- philosophically required to fall in love with each other and to express that – to express that love through sex. There's a passage in Atlas Shrugged where Rand says that platonic love is hypocrisy and that it's wrong to not express your deepest values through physical action. I think Karen needs a minute for – for tech and cat purposes. Yeah. Are you better now, Karen? Difficulties. Yes. Cat technical difficulties. <laughs> Adam was Sorry. just saying that um, Ayn Rand had an affair with somebody in her cult because they were the two smartest people in the world. 
So objectivism demanded it. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Oh, what was it? The person that believes your philosophy is the person you should have sex with? Okay, so Adam, something that I think that's interesting about um, what you were, you were going from, you know, kind of gender roles to sexuality about how Ayn Rand said that the, the person that you have the, the highest ideals for, the person whose ideals match your own is the person that you have to sleep with. Um, you, wrote a, you wrote a post that I liked that was called Atlas Shrugged Slash Fiction about how she completely discounted the idea that um, people could ever have same-sex relationships, which is strange because most of her characters are men. Yeah, so by the, by the logic of Rand's own philosophy, it seems like her male characters should have fallen in love with each other because, as, as you said, she believed that you were rationally obligated to sleep with the person who best uh, matched your own highest ideals. Um, this is a problem that particularly becomes evident near the end of the book where Dagny finds her way to Galt's Gulch, which is the, the hidden society in the mountains where all the capitalists who withdrawn from wider society have gathered to sort of restart civilization on their own. Um, their, their explicit mission is to resettle and recolonize the world after society has collapsed and everyone else has died. Um, but the population of Galt's Gulch is overwhelmingly male. I believe there's something like 20 to 30 named male characters and perhaps three or four women. I didn't seem to notice the problem with this. You know, if you're going to recolonize the world, you really need you know, to have babies. Um, but not only were there very few women, it also seemed like her philosophy, which held that productive work is the highest and only good, would really make it very difficult for a woman or for a man, for that matter, to raise children and have a family. That that seems like an inherently altruistic endeavor because you know your children can't pay you back for raising them. And objectivism, this is one of the things that it has no answer to. Um, Rand herself never even really thought much about homosexuality. She mentioned it once or twice. She called it disgusting. Uh, but that was really all she had to say mm. about it. It didn't even seemed to occur to her that a philosophy that completely discounts the possibility of procreation and family is setting itself up for extinction. Uh, Rand herself had no children, for the record. Which I think is interesting, because unlike um, Paul Ryan, she she was pro-choice. Yeah, she was pro-choice, and this is one of the ways in which she's not necessarily a good fit for the Republican Party, in spite of the fact that Paul Ryan and others idolize her. Uh, Glenn Beck has praised her. She was very staunchly pro-choice, you know, because she believed that basically, you know, that self-ownership was the highest virtue followed closely by ownership of, you know, of money and property. And she considered that the fetus was not a separate being and that you do not have an obligation, um, you know, to host it with your own body if you don't choose to. There are rumors that she herself had an abortion at one point, although she never confirmed that. So I guess my last question would be, um, what do you think Ayn Rand would say about Paul Ryan negotiating time to spend with his kids and his family um, with regards to taking the Speaker of the House job? So Rand was very um, scornful of the idea that anyone would ever want to spend more time with her family. You know, All her main characters are married to their jobs. They're either – they're either single and have no entangling relationships or in, in one case, um, her, her steel magnet, Hank Reardon, have family whom they completely reject in the pursuit of their jobs. You know, All her main characters, Dagny Taggart, 
routinely works through major holidays and often falls asleep at her desk. She's at the office so late. You know, they will work around the clock. Another of her minor characters, it said he's never taken a day off from work in 40 years. Um, you know, they're, they work 18-hour days for months on end, go without sleep. Uh, it's just extremely difficult to see how anyone could possibly fit in a family around this kind of work schedule. But she basically held that you shouldn't want to because she believed that the, high, the highest good – in fact, the only standard of good – this is a line in Atlas Shrugged – is how good you are at your job. That is the only thing that matters and the only thing that gives you value. You know, like, like I said, um, raising children is kind of an inherently altruistic endeavor. You really do have to sink a great deal of time and effort into it without any guarantee that you'll get anything in return for it. And objectivism really has no answer for why anyone would choose to do that. It doesn't even consider it a question worth asking, uh, let alone answering. And I think you know it, it's often observed that Paul Ryan said he was inspired to go into public service by reading Atlas Shrugged, which is something that makes no sense because there are no good politicians in Atlas Shrugged anywhere. Everyone who works for the government is evil without exception, and demanding that someone – take time off from work to spend time with family is also you know, the kind of thing that only evil looters and moochers do, to use her terminology. So I, I think you know, that in Rand's eyes, that would – what Ryan said would be a, two, would be a twofold um, strike against him, one in that he wanted to work for the government in the first place and second that he would want to take time off from his job to spend it with his family. I think that's very funny what you said about her idea of a work ethic considering that the Republican Congress routinely sets records for the least number of bills passed, <laughs> and also that you know their work schedule is a lot fewer days than any previous Congresses. So it's, it's kind of ironic and, and funny and sad for my country. <laughs> so uh, in Atlas Shrugged, you mentioned that the capitalists have become separatists yeah and so these are the, the people who are in this uh, capitalist utopia are only people who work these 18 hour days uh but not necessarily wealthy people um yes that's correct so um rand was of the opinion that in a properly ordered society wealth and talent and motivation uh, talent and motivation would inevitably be recognized and rewarded with wealth she seemed to have the belief that you know, unlimited advancement is possible as long as you're willing to work for it. That said, most of the people in Galt's Gulch are captains of industry. You know, they're CEOs, they're wealthy bankers, they're heads of major corporations. Um, the leader of the strike of all the capitalists separating from society mm -hmm. is named John Galt. And if you ever heard the phrase, who is John Galt, yeah. something that Republicans say, that's from Atlas Shrugged. Uh -huh. And who he was is basically the the most genius and the most capitalist of the genius capitalists um, in the in the book right. he invents a perpetual motion motor it can run forever and produce infinite power with no fuel but because he has seen that the world is tipping into socialism he decides that people don't deserve to have this great invention and he is the one who starts the strike and then travels the world recruiting other capitalists and convincing them to withdraw from society and come to live in his hidden utopia where you know where only the good people are permitted to enter but yes most of them are are the one percenters they are you know inheritors of wealth they are heads of corporations they are executives there are very when, few... when you say inheritors of wealth are they only the inheritors of wealth who work 18-hour days? Yes. Most of, okay. the, most of the large corporations in Atlas Shrugged, which seems a little implausible to me, are family 
owned businesses and are inherited through the generations. Mm. So most of her protagonists both inherited great wealth and control in their corporations but also are extremely good at managing them and are willing to work extremely hard to do so. She seemed to have this this view where like talent and motivation are almost like heritable like almost like a caste system. Hmm. Okay. That's very Republican. And so all these people climb into Galt's Gulch. What a really <laughs> funny place name. I'm sorry, I can't get over that. I can't help but make the innuendos. <laughs> so everyone's diving into Galt's Gulch. I never thought of it that way. Now I won't be able to stop thinking of it that way. And so these people are, are mostly men, is my understanding. And Elizabeth, you were yep. trying to talk about Overwhelmingly. And so there's a perpetual motion motor that makes all the power, like three the women. electrical power, I'm assuming. Yes. And then what is what do they do? What's their productivity in their society? Like, what is what do they do? They just work at what? Yeah, they, most of them who most of the characters who move to Galt's Gulch uh, re, rebuild from the ground up whatever industries they were in charge of before they were recruited to join the strike. So, you know, one of them. So they work. They all work construction then. Yeah, they work construction or mining. Most of them, you know, some of them do agriculture. Basically, whatever whatever industry they know the most about, that's the one they take over and decide to rebuild from scratch. Right, but when I think of you know the head of a construction company, I don't think of a, a man lifting beams. I think of a man in a suit. You know, I don't think men lift beams. I don't know anything about construction. I'm sorry, but um, you know, I don't think of a man who's certified to run a crane. You know. Oh yes, that that was one of the other oddities that Rand believed that if you were qualified to run a corporation, then you were also qualified to do any job within that corporation. So you know, the executives who spend their whole day sitting behind the desk and giving orders, when they need to, they also know how to you know swing a pickaxe or like you know rivet two steel beams together or something like that. They can do any job that's necessary because they're just that talented. Objectively, not true. <laughs> All right, and so most of the capable people are are men, but it's not anything inherent. It's just that women are psychologically driven to subjugate themselves to men so that they can look up to men. Yes, exactly. Okay. And although you know, although Rand did insist that women and men were equally talented, she also has this bizarre gender distribution where the you know the number of people recruited to join the strike in Galt's culture are overwhelmingly men. She didn't seem to notice, you know, the potentially sexist implications of that. They kind of like you see this a lot that her, you know, her heroine Dagny is kind of like the one exception. You know, it's like the way that Fox The cool girl. Right. Exactly the cool girl. You know, that Fox News will always find a woman or a person of color to advocate policies that hurt women and people of color. Mm -hmm. It's very much the same in Atlas Shrugged where where Dagny is the stand in who advocates all the, you know, the subservience of women and, you know, the degradation in romantic relationships. And she's, she's fine with that. Like you said, she's the cool girl who puts up with it. Hmm. So the women who are recruited to dive into Galt's Gulch, uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) So the few women who've seen Galt's Gulch, uh, They are also kind of masters of industry. Uh, why aren't they subjugating themselves to men? 
It's interesting because the the female characters in Galt's culture, we only meet them for a very brief period of time, mostly for them to explain. Yeah, they don't have a backstory. One of them is clearly a self-insert character meant to be Ayn Rand herself. She's a writer. Hmm. Um, One of them is a Hollywood actress who quit acting for the outside world because she was sick and tired of being portrayed as the beautiful homewrecker who always lost out to the little girl next door. Um, there is so much. Wait, so then what, what does she act in, in Galt's Gulch? She acts in plays that other inhabitants of that society write for her to act in. But there's no uh, explanation about the, what's different about the plots that she likes? Oh, in, in the plots that are written for Galt's Gulch, um, the beautiful blonde people always win in the end. That that's basically the difference between that and the outside. The, the gorgeous homewrecker wins. Yes. Okay. Because that that was another big aspect of her philosophy that um, moral virtue and talent are highly correlated with physical attractiveness. All her main characters, her protagonists, are depicted as beautiful. Uh, most of them are blonde and blue eyed, which is pretty disturbing when you think about it. Especially considering Ayn Rand herself was not Aryan; she was Jewish. Mm. And whereas all the the Evil characters in Atlas Shrugged, you know, the looters, as Rand calls them, are mostly fat and balding and gangly and physically unattractive in other ways. It was this very, like, stylized representation but she of what people are supposed to look and act like, but she inadvertently sent the message that beautiful people are usually the most trustworthy and the most talented. So that's not, uh, like, a conscious decision, you think? You think that was just kind of something that ended up grouping together? It seems like it was some kind of subconscious thing working its way out, possibly without her noticing it. Like the way she idolizes people with conspicuously Aryan features is very strange. And I'm I'm not even sure she realized she was doing it. So she didn't explicitly state that? No, she did not. It just apparently happens to work out that way in her world. Huh. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Adam. Thank no, you. Thanks. It's my pleasure. I'm always I'm always happy to talk about the silliness. So so Adam, where can people read your writing and stuff? Uh, my Atlas Shrugged recap you can find at uh, daylightatheism.org, which will uh, go to my blog. All the all, there's an archive page for all the posts. They're very easy to find. I've been averaging one a week. Um, mm-hmm. It's taken me a little more than two years, and I'm mostly done. This book is a, is a real doorstopper. It's over over a thousand pages. We'll link to that in the show notes. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you can find me at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N. And um, thank you everyone so much for listening. Have a good week or two till our next episode, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Our podcast theme song is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. You can listen to her music at soundcloud.com slash Bridget Ellsworth. And you can listen to her other songs there as well. And if you like what you hear, you can give her a like or even a follow.